Well, hey, I'm excited to see everyone that's here, and I'm excited for those of you that are joining us online tonight. My name is John Abernathy. I am the care pastor here at Wildwood, but also uh, a person who loves history. How do you know if you love history? Uh, you watch things that most of your family members don't want to watch called documentaries. Uh, so I love history. I was blessed to be able to uh, minor in it at OU and then study it further as I pursued my master's and my, my doctorate um, just as part of those studies. So I love it. Uh, we've had a chance to offer church history here uh, a couple times in TBI. I was blessed to be able to teach it with Jonathan Holmes and also with Phil Kemp. And so uh, it, it, I'm on my own tonight, so you get what you get. Uh, but those guys were great. And uh, they have influenced my thinking as well for the, for the positive and about church history. So I'm excited. I'm going to pray for us. So if you would, bow with me. Father God, we thank you for your faithfulness. Lord, we ask that tonight we would glorify you. Lord, that as we study what you have done throughout history, your faithfulness, your power, your love, uh, Lord, that we would be motivated to follow you, to become people who depend on you more, and even to grow in our desire to study what you've done throughout the past. Lord, we know that you call us to remember, and as we remember, uh, we look back at who you are, and it impacts our decisions and our faith today. And so I pray that this would be uh, glorifying to you and encouraging. In Jesus' name, amen. So you should have a handout. Uh, really, it's just a page to take notes. So what I've done, we were joking about the 87 slides. There really are. But what I've done is i put a lot of material on the slides so that you can go back then and you'll be able to get the slides. So you should have signed up there, put your email address on there, and then we have the slides in a Dropboxy thing that you'll be able to access. Uh, we'll send that out afterwards. So don't feel like you have to write. I want you sort of here present with me interacting. So... Um, I'm excited to do this. We are uh, going to be studying the early church, and so we're going to get started. The big question is, why do we do this? Why do we study church history? I think it is crucial, as I prayed, to remember and to know what God has done in the past as he worked through individuals' lives, through churches' lives, and through different uh, people all over the world. We grow in our faith. You're going to see God's faithfulness. And as you think of Matthew 16 and that uh, Jesus will build his church, you're going to see it. And you're going to see that the gates of hell, the true, I mean, did not prevail against it and still doesn't today. Uh, there's a lot of things that are going to be similar between the Roman society and our world. So this is going to be very applicable to your everyday life as well. Hopefully, uh, we will see and grow in our faith. Uh, we'll see God's faithfulness, his guidance, his power and his care. We'll see it in people's lives. I want to study individuals. And we will also be looking at some of the works that they actually wrote or were written about them. We'll see it in the daily life of the early church. How did they worship? What did they do? How did they live in this culture? We'll see it as the gospel spreads throughout the Roman Empire. We'll see it, uh, especially next week, in the faithful transmission of the Bible. How did the variants go throughout uh, Europe, Asia, North Africa? Uh, God kept his word uh, exactly as he wanted it written, exactly as he gave it to us. And it's going to increase our faithfulness. And we're going to connect to the historical faith of believers throughout the church. And that's the little C church. A lot of times maybe uh, our Catholic brothers and sisters uh, maybe turn us in a different direction as far as what that means to connect with our faith. But we're going to see that we have a faith that um, is in line with the early church and what they taught. Okay. What time period are we studying? We're going to study 64 A.D., okay, which is the start of the uh, Jewish revolt and the fire in Rome, all the way up through Constantine. Uh, that's if y'all don't ask any questions, right? Will we get there? I don't know, because I'm backing it up 500 years before that to start today. So, you know, we're going to see uh, all the way up to the, the important point, which is this Edict of Milan when Constantine becomes emperor that allows Christianity to be recognized as an official religion in the Roman Empire. But before we get there, we're going to back up. We need to study the world uh, before Jesus. Okay, why do we do that? Well, you can imagine trying to describe your Christian faith or the Christian faith in the world today without explaining 
or knowing anything about the countries that it's active in, right? If you said, what is the church like as it functions in China is a different question as to what the church in Brazil might look like or what the church in the United States looks like. So you have to study the culture that the church is active in, and that will also teach you some of the struggles that they have against maybe in their government or the people around them. So we're going to take a minute, actually a few minutes tonight, and we're going to go backwards. Okay, and we're going to have to study Greece and Rome. Okay, so hang on. Are you guys ready? You, we can probably do this without the slides. I'll just call on you, and you guys give the answers. Some of you are twitching because you had that high school coach that taught history, and that's the last thing you've done in history, and you're still twitching all these years later. So... I'm not going to do that to you. Um, I'm going to give you the answers on the slides. Uh, again, ancient Greece. So at the same time as ancient Greece, there's also Persia. And we're going to talk about what those mean. So we have Babylonians and Assyrians. Okay, if we back it up even further, then we have Greece. Okay, Greece, we can divide it into numerous time periods, but we like to look at it as classical Greece and then as Hellenistic Greece. And we make that delineation based on Alexander the Great. Okay, now remember, at the same time, the Persian Empire, when I say that, I want you to think of the Middle East, Iraq, Iran, Persia, is also functioning alongside Greece. Okay, you guys tracking with me? Okay, I didn't think you were, so here's the current world map. Okay, the important thing to find in a lot of church history studies, if you can sort of anchor on Turkey, okay, it is in blue there. Hopefully you guys can see that. If you find Turkey, then you can find things... Uh, that's Asia, that's where the churches are a lot in Turkey, then you can go up to the yellow, the boot, which is Italy, and in between those is Greece. Okay. Now, when I say Persia, and you want to think of the Middle East, here's the current Middle East map. You guys may be a little more familiar with this. If you find the little bitty light blue country there, that's Israel. Then you can see the countries that surround it, and so when we talk about Alexander the Great, we're going to talk about Iraq, Iran as Persia. Okay. Now, we're going to start at 431 B.C., and as you can tell by the colors on the map, it's a mess, right? So this is right in the middle of uh, the Greek Empire, but the Greeks fought against themselves. Okay, so a lot of times you'll see a movie and you'll go, well, who are they fighting against, and why is it Athens versus Sparta, right? I watched the movie. What's going on here? Well, as you can see, the purple looks like an Oklahoma wall cloud. That's the Persian Empire, right? You, you guys are familiar with, there it comes. Everything else that you see on there is Greece, okay? So you can see the different parts. Alexander the Great comes on the scene about a hundred years after this, and he conquers that entire area, including part of Persia, okay? So this is what we call the Hellenistic Empire, okay? You'll, you'll think, if you think back, right? If you think of uh, even the time of Stephen and in Acts, there were Hellenistic Jews, Remember, and they were trying to say, hey, who gets fed more here? Who does this in our church? This is going to be important, right? Hellenism or Greek culture, right? We're going to have the Greek language spread throughout the empire. And as people didn't speak uh, Hebrew as much, they're going to speak Koine Greek. Okay, he conquers uh, the world. And then we see all of these things happen that are Greek influence on Roman culture later. We good back there? Everything okay? We functioning? Good. Here we go. Philosophy, language, math. Do you know where that picture is? You've been there, Lori. Yeah, pop quiz on, on absolutely amazing. These things all really happened, right? History really happened, and you can still go there and see these places, right? I'm going to give you some examples of this, the Greek influence, right? Uh, if you think of philosophy, right, you have Socrates, you have Plato, you have Aristotle, right? The way that they communicate with rhetoric, but also the way that they ask questions. We're going to see that in the Roman Empire. Think of how Jesus is being questioned, right? That's the Greek influence, right? We see it, as I mentioned earlier, in their language. We see it in math. Again, you're going to twitch again because I'm going to say some names, but Euclid, Pythagoras, right? Uh, Archimedes, you guys remember some of these mathematicians from then. In medicine, right? Um, you take a Hippocratic oath. Why? Because he was Greek, and uh, he, he had advancements in, in medicine, right? Uh, literature. You guys, can you name some? You know these. There's two you read in high school. The Iliad and the Odyssey, right? We have, we have fantastic Greek literature. Uh, we have theater. All of a sudden, we have Greek tragedies, Greek comedies, and these are going to influence the Roman emperors, 
and it's going to influence society, right? We see it in art, even in the way that they represent humans. All of a sudden, the Greek, Greek sculpture, sculptures and statues and realism come into play, okay? So that is the Greek world, okay? Now, Rome existed as a city during this time, right? We would say that Rome was founded uh, in 750 B.C., and you can, you can read about, and you'll hear a little bit in one of the videos, in the video that we're going to play about Romulus. Uh, but the two R's found this, founded the city of Rome, 750 B.C. Rome is existing during the Greek Empire, just not as a Roman Empire. Okay, we don't, we don't view Rome as um, taking over from Greece until, you see there in 160, the Battle of Corinth. And we just keep, we can't go into all this. I know you're disappointed. Just nod like you're, you're tracking with me. That's when the Roman Empire, as we, as we uh, would call it, started, uh, really as an empire in 27. So these, are, these dates are in B.C. Uh, we see Augustus becoming the first emperor, and we're going to see that dynasty continue even through uh, Nero. Okay? Now, so this is, just, this is up till the time of Christ. So we have Greece, then we have Rome. Okay? Um, after Christ, some of you have been in the Acts study with Mark. After Christ... We have most of the New Testament uh, epistles written to the churches that are throughout the area, right? You guys ended Acts, you'd seen, you saw some of these written, right? Some of them are written after that, with the exception of the book of Revelation and things that John is doing because he lives about 30 years longer. Okay, just to give you a, a little timeline as to where we are, uh, Rome is going to burn, and we're going to talk about that under Nero in 64 AD. The temple in Jerusalem is going to be destroyed in 70 AD. Right? So if you can get two dates in your mind for today, those are the two dates, 64 and 70. Right? Um, Lori and I have been blessed to um, go to Italy, to go to Rome, to view some of these sites, to go through Israel, as some of you have with, some of you have gotten to go with Mark, highly recommend that as well. Some of the pictures that you see are my pictures, so if you see my kids in them, that's why. Um, I, the, the main picture that you saw that was the Colosseum, and it's a bright sunny day, we needed it to be gray and cloudy for the Colosseum picture, but it wasn't because they're, they're my pictures. So. Um, and the ones that aren't, we're going to also, I included some artwork because artwork and music can also help you study history and study who, uh, even who Jesus is and the disciples. So I included some artwork in here and I'll reference that as we go. We continue on and this can just blur out in your brain for a second. Um, in in 286 AD, right, about almost 300 years after where we're going to be tonight, uh, the east and the west are going to split. So Diocletian is going to move and establish actually four leaders at that time. Don't worry about it right now. Constantine takes over in 312. 313 is the edict that I talked about. Uh, he is going to establish a city, name it after himself, of course, in 330. That's going to become the capital of the Eastern Roman Empire. Uh, you see on there Byzantium. Okay, That's going to be called everything that is in uh, East Asia, all the way over to the Holy Land. Uh, the fall of Rome is seen, Western Rome in 410, when the Visigoths sack Rome under Alaric, and then the, the entire Western Roman Empire falling in, in 476, when the last emperor is killed. You got this? No. Yes? No, maybe. Okay. Here's a picture. You guys like pictures? There's some pictures, okay? This is the Roman Empire. You recognize it as the Mediterranean Sea, right? Remember, what do you need to find when you're studying this? Turkey. Turkey. Where is Turkey? Turkey is purple and green in this map. Find Turkey. There you'll find a lot of the churches that are going to be established during the timeline we're talking about. Remember, just between Turkey and Italy is Greece, okay? You need to tell the person you're with, we probably just need to go on a, a cruise of Greece so that I can find these biblical sites, okay? What I'm going to do now is give you a little bit of a history. There's a, a lot of wonderful things actually video-wise on uh, YouTube, and we're going to watch one of those for about five minutes here. So bear with me as I pull that up. Yep, there we go. Home is a story of evolution, of how a civilization's ability to adapt and dominate can lead to its survival for over a thousand years. Rome began as a small village on central Italy's Tiber River. In the coming centuries, it grew into an empire that stretched from the North Atlantic all the way to the Persian Gulf. 
During this transformation, Rome displayed a political, military, and cultural prowess that enabled it to become a superpower and helped shape what would become known as Western civilization. The lifespan of ancient Rome can be divided into three major periods, the Regal, the Republican, and the Imperial. During the Regal period, Rome was monarchical and ruled by a succession of about seven kings. Rome's first king, according to legend, was a man named Romulus. He and his twin brother Remus are said to have founded Rome in 753 BC. In 509 BC, Rome adopted a republican system of governance in which the state was primarily ruled by two annually elected representatives called praetors, who were later called consuls. One of them became a famous general and dictator, Julius Caesar. The imperial period followed. It was characterized by the rise of the Roman Empire and notorious leaders such as Octavian, Rome's first emperor, who ushered in an era of peace, and Nero, who, some scholars believe, was Rome's cruelest emperor. Rome's focus and pride in its military was vital to the civilization's growth. And this ethos was evident as early as the Regal period, when Rome was only a small village. Still, Rome slowly conquered and annexed neighboring peoples. This slow and steady expansion eventually led to the Romans' domination of the Italian peninsula and the entire Mediterranean Sea, where they conquered the Greeks, Egyptians, and Carthaginians. Military conquests would later help Rome conquer lands as far away as Britain and Iraq, this massive scale and growing populace necessitated advancements in Roman engineering. Aqueducts were constructed, which increased the public's access to water, helped improve public health, and paved the way for Rome's famed bathhouses. A 50,000-mile-long road system was built as well. While made originally for the military, it facilitated the movement of people and ideas throughout the empire. This transmission of ideas and increased contact with diverse cultures also enabled other aspects of Roman culture to evolve. A key to Rome's success and longevity was the empire's inclusion of cultures from the lands they conquered. From the nearby land of Latium, Rome acquired the Latin language, which became the empire's official language and the ancestor to Europe's Romance languages. Romans also adopted cultural aspects from the ancient state of Etruria, including their religion, alphabet, and the spectacle of gladiator combat. However, no other civilization influenced the Romans as much as the ancient Greeks. Their influence is probably most apparent in Rome's art and architecture. Upper-class Romans commissioned paintings and sculptures to imitate Greek art. Greek architectural styles, such as columns, were implemented in Roman structures, such as the Pantheon and Colosseum. One cultural shift in particular that resonated throughout the empire was the rise of Christianity. Originating in the Middle East, the religion found a strong advocate in Constantine I, the first Roman emperor to convert to Christianity. He enabled Rome's transition into a Christian state and encouraged the religion to spread across Europe. By the fourth century, after a lifespan of over a millennium, the Roman Empire declined. Factors including political corruption, economic crises, and class conflict led to the empire's decay from within, while invasions and other military threats caused it to break down from outside. Rome's ability to incorporate diverse cultures, dominate rivals, and adapt political systems to the needs of its people are all lessons to be learned for time eternal. secular National Geographic video, but did you pick up on how the Lord has expanded his church using the Roman Empire?
We're going to talk about some of this, right? But you saw it in common language, in roads to go throughout the empire. Um, you'll see why we're studying this. This is, this is important because um, this is the culture for the next almost 400 years that Christians lived in, Okay. What was it like in the Roman Empire? You guys know a little bit of this from studying our New Testament maybe, but, um, and it changes. And it's also geographically local at times. So we can have certain things happening in one part of the empire and not in the other. But in general, right, uh, you have a peace. And that's that word pax that you see there at the, at the end. Uh, Rome was in peace except in its borders where it was always fighting, uh, usually people from uh, the north. And also, except for the emperors who were always killing each other. But other than that, there was a great peace throughout Rome. It wanted political unity throughout the, the country, right? But also allowed the local governments to function in a way that the people there felt as if they could keep some of their culture. And we saw that with the Jews. Um, we see Roman law, but we see Hellenistic culture. We talked about that a little bit. You know how it was ruled. You've studied it maybe in government. It's a republic. There are elected officials uh, there is also citizenship given to people. There's slavery. There's other classes. There's a class division in Rome. And, and you see this throughout the New Testament writings and then the writings in the early church. This is the world they lived in, right? See why that's important? Okay. There are emperors, as we mentioned, in Rome. Uh, as you see on this list, um, they didn't get to live or rule very long, right? Um, you'll see on there... Uh, a picture of uh, I think it's Vespasian, maybe Claudius, I can't see on my screen, but you, the only thing you'll notice there is in our time period, there were actually four, including Vespasian in 69, that's the time of the year of the four emperors. Okay, but other than that, it was ruled by an emperor, but as you see from reading the times and acts of Jesus and the trials that he went through in the Gospels, right, local authorities had a lot of say, Okay. Um, there are actually recreations to scale of what Rome itself looked like. Uh, you'll see on there, there's the Colosseum, see the round thing. You'll see the Palatine Hill. You'll see the aqueduct, see the brown water system. Went down like an inch a mile to get the water to move. It's pretty amazing, right? You'll see the forum on there, the Roman forum. You'll see the baths, some of the bigger buildings. Um, we also see uh, just incredible architecture, armies, but we also have religion, Okay? And religion in the Roman Empire can be a little bit confusing because there's so much going on, right? Syncretism means that they borrowed from and allowed the elements of other religions to take control, to be in control, whatever area it was in. And so you see, when you tried to memorize your Roman gods and your Greek gods, you went, why are there both, right? right? They allowed sort of everything. So there, there is, um, there's cults, there's temples, there's myths, there's things with sexuality, um, there are lots of gods. And Mark preached on this when he preached on uh, Paul's sermon to an unknown god, saying that there were hundreds of Roman gods, right? We see this in their architecture. This is the Pantheon still standing today. That's one that one of my children is in. I think she's at the very bottom there somewhere. But by its name, Pantheon, what does it sound like? Lots of different things, right? Lots of religions, uh, the temple of all gods, right? Inside the Pantheon, you'll see these little inserts. I believe there's eight of them. There may be seven of different... Is that still working right? Okay. Uh, maybe different um, where they could put in different gods. In the Pantheon, it's interesting now, um, in the Pantheon, you have like the tomb of Raphael. You have the tomb of like three Italian kings. Um, so they've changed it over, and then that's actually a functioning church in there that's a Roman Catholic church. Um, other areas like Lebanon... Uh, there are temples still standing. Uh, we're talking about Roman religion here. Uh, pretty impressive structure. There was actually a temple structure here called the Jupiter Temples. One of them is still standing. Um, extra credit if you know what his name means. Bacchus. Maybe you get less credit. It means wine. But it was actually a temple to the sun. I don't know why they call it the wine temple. It was, it was made to the sun, right? Uh, the second part of religion besides the syncretism is emperor worship, Right? The emperors saw themselves as gods. You were required to burn incense before the emperor's image. Uh, you were required to do certain things that would lead to death if you didn't. And we're going to see that in the persecution of the church. Okay? It was a means of unity. It was a, a test of your loyalty to stand before the emperor or wherever you were in the empire and uh, worship him. We also have a third religion in the Roman Empire, amongst others, right? 
the Jews. Okay? The Christians would consider themselves part of the Jewish faith at this time. Okay? The earliest Christians, it says, did not consider themselves followers of a new religion. Their faith wasn't a denial of Judaism, but was rather the conviction uh, that the Messiah had come. Right? Uh, Christians in Jerusalem continued to keep the Sabbath. They worshipped at the temple. Remember, where did Paul go when he was evangelizing in the Roman Empire first? Right? He would go to the synagogues and talk to them. Uh, it says they gathered to break bread in celebration of the resurrection of Jesus. Interesting, if you catch the word resurrection, it's going to not really morph into celebration of his death until later. Um, this is from Gonzalez's first book. There are two books by Gonzalez. Um, his name is Justo L. Gonzalez. Um, this one is the one going to the Reformation. So church history is normally divided at the Reformation. Uh, but that's a wonderful work if you want to read it. A second work is church history, and we've used this in a previous class by Bruce Shelley. So if you want to read a little bit, you got, I'll just watch videos. There are good videos out there also, okay? Um, I want to read just a touch here from Shelley. He, he says this about the Christians at this time, and again, we're going to get more into their, the way that they worship next week, but he says that the word used to describe Christian in the New Testament is highly significant. It is hagios, translated saints. It means holy ones, but the root means different. So a holy thing is different than other things. The temple was holy because it was different from other buildings. The Sabbath day was holy because it was different from other days. The Christian, therefore, was a person who was fundamentally different. Uh, men always view with suspicion people who are different. Conformity, not distinctiveness, is the way to a trouble-free life. The more the early Christians took their faith seriously, the more they were in danger of crowd reaction. Simply living according to the teachings of Jesus, the Christian was a constant, unspoken condemnation of the pagan way of life. You guys may feel this today a little bit in our culture, right? It was not that the Christian went about criticizing and condemning and disapproving, nor was he consciously self-righteous and superior. It was simply that the Christian ethic in itself was a criticism of pagan life. He says, fundamental to the Christian lifestyle and the cause of endless hostility was the Christian's rejection of the pagan gods. The Greeks and Romans had deities for every aspect of living, for sowing, reaping, for the rain, wind, volcanoes, rivers, birth, death. But to the Christians, these gods were nothing, and their denial of them marks the followers of Jesus as enemies of the human race. Okay? Christians were called atheists. So if you, see, if you study church history during that time period, then you're gonna, we're going to see it in Polycarp as he's, as he's martyred. They were called atheists. It says that the Christian fear of idolatry also led to difficulties in making a living. A mason might be involved in building the walls of a heathen temple, a tailor in making robes for a heathen priest, an incense maker in making incense for the heathen sacrifices. Sound familiar? Right? We've seen this in, even in our world, even in the United States. In short, the early Christian was almost bound to divorce himself from the social and economic life of his time if he wanted to be true to his Lord. This meant that everywhere the Christian turned, his life and faith were on display because the gospel introduced a revolutionary new attitude toward human life. It's a different world that the Christians were in, right? They were seen as very, very different. And we're gonna, we'll talk about a little bit about what that looked like. I want to give you one more timeline. Okay, so after Acts, if you will, well, some of this is in Acts, but after Acts, there's the missionary journeys in Acts. Okay, then we have, uh, again, in the 60 through 70 A.D. time period is when everything happens. Uh, there is some, uh, we don't exactly know if Paul made it to Spain, so we don't know our timeline exactly. But we're going to see these, the Roman imprisonment, and there is the destruction of Jerusalem, right? What did Jesus say when he came back after Easter? This is what he said, right? He said, I want you to do what? I want you to go and make disciples of all nations, the Roman roads are in place, right? The system already exists. The Roman roads are very safe. There weren't robbers necessarily on every corner. You may think of the Good Samaritan. They were, they were it wasn't like that. The Roman roads, in a, in a sense, were very, very safe. He says, I want you to go, and I want you to baptize people, and I want you to teach them. Mark talked about this as the outline for the book of Acts, right? Acts 1.8, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and then to the ends of the earth, right? Jesus' words come true. He tells them this, and then he ascends. Jesus is alive, living today, and he was then. Right? He says, you're going to be my witnesses. What was the world like for them? Well, the gospel was spreading, just like Acts 1-8 said. Jews and Gentiles both were coming to faith. 
Uh, and that, there was confusion in that. We had to clarify what was the role of the Jewish faith. What was the role of circumcision as we tried to understand this? It said in Acts 2 that Christians had the Holy, they received the Holy Spirit and they were living out the Christian life together, right? So we know that they shared everything that they had. They came together to worship. They were living out their faith in a pagan world. This slide shows some of the churches of the first century, okay? So you'll see the church has spread. What has the most dots? Yeah, there you go. Thank you. Turkey has the most dots, right? We'll talk about it. Um, you'll also see that the, the gospel and the churches have spread. This is from John Hanna, who's a history professor at Dallas Seminary. Uh, you'll also see two dots at the bottom. You can probably figure out one of those, maybe not the other one, right? One is Egypt. See the river, right? It's already spread to Egypt. And also you'll see it there at Carthage in North Africa. So we're going to see a lot of believers come out of North Africa and leaders in the church. This is already by the, the end of the first century. Now, Jesus has also told them to expect persecution, right? Uh, he says uh, at the end of John, and we just talked about this at Easter, Lori and I did, uh, when he says to Peter, when you're old, you will stretch out your hands. Someone else will dress you and lead you where you don't want to go. And in doing this, he, he indicated the kind of death that Peter would have, right? Peter at that time said, Jesus, there's not going to be persecution. Remember, I deny that. Jesus restored him, but then he said, you're going to also undergo persecution, right? Peter, when he writes um, in his first epistle, he says this, and look at this. Don't be surprised at the fiery ordeal that has come on to test you as though something strange were happening to you. Right? He's writing to the people in the early church. What's changed? Peter's view on suffering and persecution in the Christian life has changed by the time he wrote this. He says, "...inasmuch as you participate in the sufferings of Christ, so that you may be overjoyed when His glory is revealed. If you're insulted because of the name of Christ, you are blessed, for the Spirit of glory and of God rests on you. If you suffer, it shouldn't be as a murderer or a thief or a criminal." But if you suffer as a Christian, don't be ashamed. Praise God that you bear that name. And look at what he says. It's the time for judgment to begin with God's household. Right? You picking up on this? Persecution begins. Again, it's, it's localized to certain areas at this time. Uh, it's not going to be for almost 160 years later when it's really throughout the empire under Diocletian. We're going to look at one of these scenarios. We're going to look at Nero. Okay, you'll see a little box picture there. Um, actually, twice in the last three years, somebody has recreated the Roman emperors based on clay models and statues, and they sort of look, I don't know. Someone said that guy looked, Nero looks like he's from Lord of the Rings, but I don't, I don't know. But this is a horrible, horrible family. He's going to be the last, uh, again, in the emperors out of his family line. If you'll just look at some of the bullet points as the guy that's leading the Roman Empire right now, his mother marries Claudius, the previous emperor, or the emperor of the time. She killed her second husband. She has Nero adopted, so he's his stepson. He marries Claudius' daughter. Uh, they believe uh, Agrippina then poisons uh, her husband, right, so that Nero can come to power at 17 years old. He comes to power then, uh, and he marries his friend's wife, has his mother killed, and then he kills his wife three years later as well. Uh, not a great guy, right? This is the guy leading the empire. Now, he was a man of the people, so it's easy to say, put somebody in a box and say, hey, they're horrible, they're like this. But if you read some of the things that Nero did, uh, the lower social classes loved him because of his uh, views on their taxation, things like that, but they, they loved him. So again, we're looking at this from a, a Christian viewpoint um, and from some of the things that he did, right? 64 AD, one of our main dates, Rome burns. Okay, what, you probably know one thing about this in Nero, right? What was Nero doing? Right. Tacitus, the Roman historian, says Nero was playing his fiddle while Rome burned. Nero wanted to recreate Rome in his image, what he wanted it to be. Uh, did he start it? We don't know. Rome burns from three to eight days. Ten of the 14 districts are destroyed. Thousands of lives are lost. Um, there, there weren't fiddles then anyway. He, probably, he had a liar that he played. He liked to be in, uh, see himself in plays. He played like he was a charioteer at certain times, but uh, he wanted to recreate Rome uh, as he wanted it. So he, was, he would have been happy that this happened, but then he does something. He blames Christians. And again, we have writings by Roman historians that tell us what happened. Okay, so he blames Christians. 
Again, he, he says that they not only um, caused this fire, but he said Christians hate the human race. That's what Nero said. Um, we have Roman historians who tell us he then uh, murdered thousands of Christians, uh, in, including, as you see here, burning some of them to provide torchlight uh, while he celebrated. Okay, Christian persecution had begun. Um, after, uh, the, after Rome burned, somewhere in that time period, Paul and Peter were probably martyred. Okay, we, just, we just don't know exactly. Uh, we're pretty sure about Peter and somewhat sure about Paul. Uh, but somewhere in that time period, uh, as Nero was reigning and, until um, Nero eventually commits suicide. But he builds his palaces, including a huge statue of himself, right? This is hundreds of acres of palaces, um, while down in the Holy Land, Jerusalem and the Jews are beginning to revolt. They actually started revolting 20-some-odd years before this. Um, that picture of that statue is taken off a coin, we have coins from the time of Nero, and that's the backside of the coin. Uh, they don't know for sure if he had on the Statue of Liberty-looking hat, but he, he was their big statue of himself. So, um, Meanwhile, in the Holy Land, in Jerusalem, the Jews are revolting. Okay? So what I, I put on there, it's in little print so you can read it later, but what it says on there is under, uh, in 39... The emperor declared himself a deity. He ordered that his, his statue would be set up in the temple. Remember, this is the second temple, right? This is the rebuilt temple. They just finished it by this time. It had taken a long time, but they just finished it, right? Uh, he sets up, uh, says that his statue has to be set up, excuse me, at every temple in the Roman Empire. The Jews refused the command. They wouldn't do it, okay? This is, um, again, in 39. Uh, it says that he threatened to destroy the temple, so a delegation of Jews was sent to pacify him. He raged at them. You are the enemies of the gods, the only people who refuse to recognize my divinity. Right, so this starts. Um, you guys may remember the Maccabees. We couldn't cover the Maccabees about 150 years before Christ. The, the Jewish zealots, uh, the, the rebels, uh, had, had constantly pushed back against Roman taxation and some of the things in the Roman Empire. Uh, they then, this becomes a full-fledged revolt in 66 AD. And this is important. Just hold on. Hold tight with me, Okay. Um, we see Nero in the middle of the revolt commits suicide, but he had, he had uh, told his general Vespasian to come and bring all the troops, right? So he comes with thousands upon thousands of troops. You can see him there, in that, and that's a painting. You can see him a little bit in the bottom right. Again, that's a painting from 1850. That's a 7-by-12-foot painting, by the way. I put that in there just so you guys can look up some of the paintings later. But um, Vespasian then, uh, during that one year where there were four emperors... He's called back to become emperor, and so he sends Titus, his son. Not the good Bible Titus, bad Titus, who then destroys, after a siege, Jerusalem. Uh, what does this matter, right? Well, the last thing that Titus's uh, troops do is they burn the temple. Okay? Jesus predicted this. You'll remember this, Mark 13. Some of these passages in Mark and in Matthew can be a little difficult to understand because... Some of them happened, and then some of them haven't happened yet. This, has, this happened, just like he said. Jesus was told by his disciples, look at these magnificent stones. Look at these beautiful buildings. And Jesus probably brought the mood down a little bit, but he said, do you see all the great buildings? Not one stone will be left on another. Every one will be thrown down. It happens under Titus in 70 AD. The temple is destroyed. Jews are carried into slavery the Roman historian Josephus, two great works by Josephus. Um, interesting that he was a Jew and then became the Roman historian, ends up going to Rome. He claims there were a million Jews killed and 100,000 taken into slavery. Um, the, the fall of Jerusalem ends in 70 AD. The Christians were not a big part of this. They didn't stick up for the Jews, causing the Jews to be incredibly upset with the Christians. The Christians had moved out of the city. They'd gone out to a city called Pella. They had left. They didn't really want any part of this riot, revolt, and destruction. Right? The Jews hold out. Um, very interesting. If you've ever been over to Israel, they hold out at Masada. There's, a, there's some of them left. They had actually taken this over um, almost seven years before this. This is Herod the Great. Remember, he built everything. Well, he built a fortress there that he spent a little bit of time at, sort of his summer home, right? The Jews are there. Uh, they hold this siege until 73 AD, so for three more years. If you look on the right of that picture, you'll see a Roman siege ramp that still exists. 
It took the Romans seven years to retake Masada. Uh, the historian tells us that then um, at the end, all of the Jews uh, committed suicide on top of Masada. We don't see a nation of Israel again until the 1940s. So this is it, the destruction of, of Jerusalem. I put in there some quotes about Masada. You can see in, in Rome in 81, they build an arch for Titus. As you see on that arch, there are the Jews and the modern day, uh, what we would say is a menorah and where the Jews actually got it for their flag today, where Israel, part, that's, they took it off the arch of Titus. You see them being carried away into slavery, right? Been some very famous people that have seen the arch there. We won't go into a lot of them. Um, that looks like we're photoshopped on there. We are not. It's just a bad picture. Um, uh, again, I put some quotes in there. There's Josephus talking about what it was like when Titus came back. Okay. Brief break for a second. Okay, we've got about 15 minutes left. I want you guys to stand up. See if you can. You don't have to. Just stand up for just 20 seconds. Take a little break. Breathe. And we're going to switch gears here for a second. Okay. Okay. I didn't have anything for you to do. You can sit back down. I, didn't. I just thought you're probably falling asleep or bored by now. Okay, so now, uh, as we look at this diagram, there are different ways to divide church history. Uh, one of them, Hannah's way here, is to call this age the age of the apostles. And not only just the apostles, but the people that lived alongside the apostles. And we're going to see a little bit more of the early church fathers as we end here also. But that's one way of dividing it. You remember in Acts 19, Paul says, he, remember, he was there for how long? He was there for over two years. Mark taught on this, remember, in Ephesus. And it says, the residents, all the residents of Asia heard the word of the Lord. Okay, so again, we go back to uh, Paul's time there with the church at Ephesus, spreading the gospel throughout the empire. Okay, we're going to see the church fathers then in that same area. Where do you think all those names are? What could that be? That's Turkey, right? See some, some great names on here, also a couple writings. Uh, I want to talk a little bit about one of these, Polycarp. Before I go there, uh, Polycarp was the bishop of Smyrna. So Smyrna is in modern-day Turkey. You'll see on there, these are the seven churches of Revelation 2 and 3. Okay, so the churches were already established enough by the time that John wrote Revelation that he could say, here's what the angel of the Lord says to your church. Okay, so you're looking at somewhere between 40 and 50 years later, the churches are already throughout that area. Okay, you'll see the one on there that says Smyrna. Smyrna is where our buddy Polycarp was the head of the church. Doesn't mean many bad fish, it's just his name, right? Uh, this is a, a recreation, thank you, thank you very much. This is a recreation of what uh, Smyrna looked like at the time. You will see there is a Colosseum and there are things happening. Uh, very large city. Polycarp lives from 69 to either 156 or 166. We don't know exactly which of the 10 years he was martyred, uh, but he is leader of the church. There are still ruins there of the time of the church around this area. The church has moved north and west now, the basis of the church from Israel. Uh, today, this is modern-day uh, Izmir, Turkey. About 5 million people lived where Polycarp was. Um, some pretty cool buildings as well. Okay. Polycarp. Polycarp, this is, going to be, this is just going to be mind-blowing. Polycarp knew the Apostle John. Okay? So we have writings from people who knew Polycarp, who lived after him and alongside him, that tell us about him. He knew the Apostle John. He was the leader of the church. Throughout his life, he did things like he went to Rome, and they talked through different... You remember there was a Jerusalem council. There was a Roman council, and he went there as they tried to decide, what is the church going to look like? What are we going to follow? What are we going to do? Even in that case, when is Easter? They were talking about all these things. I think Polycarp won that, and I'm still upset at him today because I can't figure out when Easter is. But he went to Rome, and he, he dealt with a lot of issues, right? He wrote against false teaching. Against false teaching. Um, he wrote a letter that we have uh, to the church at Philippi, okay? He's the subject of a work that was done by his followers called the Martyrdom of Polycarp. And we're going to look at that a little bit. But before that, there's somebody who lives after him, okay? And his name is Irenaeus, okay? And he writes this about Polycarp. He says, Polycarp was not only instructed by apostles, but conversed with many who had seen Christ, but was also, by apostles in Asia, he was appointed bishop of the church. I want you to catch that, right? There is a direct secession here of believers 
from the believers that were alive in the book of Acts and in your New Testament to the next set of believers, and we have the writings about them. Okay? It says that he always taught the things which he had learned from the apostles, which the church handed down, which alone are true. Okay? This isn't a modern-day Roman pope saying this. Okay? This, is, this is a succession of truth coming through the early church. He says, to all these things the Asiatic churches testify, as to those men who have succeeded Polycarp down to the present time. He wrote this about 50 years after his life. Okay? He goes on to say... Um, there were people in Rome, and we'll, we'll talk about Marcion a little bit next time, but it says they, caused, uh, they were causing people to turn away from Christ. But it says he went to Rome, and he, it says he caused many to turn away from those heretics, back to the church of God, proclaiming that he had received this one and sole truth from the apostles, which is handed down by the church. So when he talked to other people and he said, this is why what you're teaching is incorrect, it's because I received this truth from the apostles. I received this truth from those people right? Um, <laughs> just a funny quote. Um, Marcion, the, the heretic that he was communicating with, it says he met him on one occasion, and Marcion said, do you know me? Polycarp said, I know the firstborn of Satan, right? <laughs> he was an intense guy, right? Why? Because a little leaven works through the whole dough, okay? Such was the horror uh, that the apostles and their disciples had against holding even verbal communication with any corruptors of the truth, Okay? Irenaeus goes on, and we'll read one more thing here. He says, Together with his discourses which he delivered to the people, he would speak of his familiar intercourse with John and the rest of those who had seen the Lord, how he would call their words to remembrance. Whatsoever he heard from them respecting the Lord, both in regard to his miracles and his teaching, Polycarp received from the eyewitnesses of the word of life, and he would recount them, and they were in all harmony with the Scriptures. This should bolster your faith, Right? This should bolster your faith. Okay, the Roman policy at the time uh, was a little bit strange, but it is this policy for over 100 years, and we get it in a letter written by Emperor Trajan, ruled for over 20 years, to one of the local governors, Pliny, in 112 AD. Here's what he says what we're going to do with Christians like Polycarp. It's not possible to lay down any general rule to serve as a kind of fixed standard. They're not to be sought out. If they are denounced and proved guilty, however, they're to be punished. With this reservation, whoever denies that he's a Christian and really proves it by worshiping our gods, even though he was under suspicion in the past, shall obtain pardon through repentance. This is the Roman rule, again, for over 100 years in dealing with Christians. We're not going to seek them out, but if they get in trouble or if we find them or something happens to them, then they're going to have to renounce Christ. Okay, this happens to Polycarp, right? He's already in his mid-80s at this time. Um, the Christians at the time believed that those who actually sought out martyrdom weren't true people of faith, that God would martyr you if he wanted to martyr you, right? You don't need to seek it out. That's how you know. So Polycarp, when he was being sought, um, wanted to stay in the city, wanted to go straight into martyrdom, but he instead his disciples tell him, hey, go to the country. He has a vision that he'll be burned alive. The authorities come for him. He asks for an hour to pray. You can imagine this, right? And instead, he, the, we know he prayed for two. We have a work by his followers. Just hang with me, okay? Hang with me. We have a work called The Martyrdom of Polycarp, and I want you to hear some of this. This is the story of what happened to him. It says, as Polycarp was entering into the stadium, there came to him a voice from heaven saying, be strong and show thyself a man, O Polycarp. Okay, remember, there was a stadium there in Smyrna. Cell phone picture here is a little blurry, but you get the idea of what the stadium would look like. So we're like the Colosseum. Thank you, Lori, for laughing under your mask. Some of you maybe online are laughing. It says this, The proconsul, the, the local Roman authority, sought to persuade Polycarp to deny Christ, saying, Have respect to thy old age, and other similar things. Swear by the fortune of Caesar. Repent. Say, Away with the atheists. The atheists are the Christians, right? Polycarp, gazing with a stern countenance on all the multitude of the wicked heathen in the stadium and waving his hands toward them, while with groans looked up to heaven, says, Away with the atheists! But he's not talking about the Christians. The proconsul urged him, says, Swear, and I will set thee at liberty. Reproach Christ. He says, Eighty and six years I have served him. He never did me any injury. How then can I blaspheme my king and savior? Right? He lived all these years of life of faith, of leadership, and he is going to be put to death at 86. And you know what? He is going to, he has, 
run the race, he's going to fight the fight, and he's going to end up well. He says, uh, the proconsul says again, swear by the fortune of Caesar. He says, is that doing okay up there? Look like it's blinking. He says, hear me declare with boldness. I am a Christian, right? If you wish to learn about what those doctrines are, appoint me a day and you can hear them. This is just before he's being put to his death, right? The proconsul says this, I have wild beasts at hand and I will cast you to these unless you repent. Polycarp says, call them then. We don't repent of things that are good in order to adopt what is evil. And it is well for me to be changed from what is evil to what is righteous. The proconsul says, I will cause thee to be consumed by fire, seeing you despise the wild beast if you don't repent. Polycarp says, you threaten me with fire which burns for an hour after little is extinguished, but you're ignorant of the fire of the coming judgment and eternal punishment reserved for the ungodly. Why tarriest thou? Bring forth what you will. While he spoke these, he was filled with confidence and joy. His countenance was full of grace, so that not merely did it not fall as if troubled, but on the contrary, the proconsul was astonished. And he sent his herald into the stadium to say three times, Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. Polycarp has confessed that he is a Christian. Polycarp has confessed that he's a Christian. This proclamation was made by the herald. It says that the Jews cried out with uncontrollable fury. This is the teacher of Asia, the father of Christians, the overthrower of our gods. He who has been teaching many not to sacrifice or worship the gods. It says they surrounded him with the substances to set him on fire. And they were about to nail him. And he says, leave me as I am. He that gives me strength to endure the fire will enable me also without you securing me to remain without moving in this pile. Right? The flame blazed forth. Uh, we beheld a great miracle. These are the people that wrote about what they saw. The fire shaped itself in a form of an arch, like the sail of a ship, encompassed as a circle the body of the martyr, and he appeared not like flesh which is burned, but as bread that is baked or gold and silver glowing in a furnace, and there was a smell like frankincense. He doesn't die from the fire in front of everybody. They eventually go up and kill him with a dagger. They have to put him to death a different way. Um, the Gospel of Polycarp ends by saying he is spoken of by the heathen themselves. He was not only an illustrious teacher, but a martyr. A martyr who we all desire to imitate. He was altogether consistent with the Gospel of Christ. Through patience, uh, he overcame the unjust governor and now acquired the crown of immor immortality with the apostles and all the righteous in heaven. Okay. You may not have heard of him before. There are a lot like him. Right, who go to death for their, for their faith and are an example of us for our faith. Okay. Whew. Well, you did it. That's 82 of the 87 slides. Um, one slide is application. What do I do with all this? Right? You know, I, I want you to think about where this might increase your faith. As God was faithful to spread his church after the time of Christ and the disciples, uh, as he had a, the Roman Empire, which was a thousand years, think how long the United States has been here, right? A thousand year empire, he prepared for the spread of the gospel, right? Um, there were people of faith who counteracted um, false teaching, who spent their lives um, governing and ruling the local church and serving the people there, right? And people who stood up for their faith till the end that you are a part of the story of. That is your heritage. Right? I'd like to study my heritage a little bit on Ancestry.com and try and figure out where I'm from or who was there. And you know, There haven't been any special people so far, but I'm sure there are somewhere down the line special people. But um, your, an your ancestors are the people who faithfully kept their faith and saw the gospel spread throughout this time and worshiped the Lord. And they're your spiritual ancestors. Pretty cool stuff. Right? I would like you to, you know, tonight when you're praying, thank God for his faithfulness, that you still have the word of God, that we still have the ability to worship him uh, as the early church did. I want to take about three or four minutes we have left and take comments or questions. Comments or questions. I'll put up a slide saying what, what's next week. Lots of things, lots of cool things. And if you want the slides and you're watching this online, you can email me, john at wildwoodchurch.org. I'll send you guys the link to the slides as well. Comments or questions? Keith. Do you think that 
you know, we don't know. He wasn't born until 69. So John being the old guy, um, we know that for sure, but we don't, we don't know what it meant by the other apostles. Good thought, though. Other questions or comments? What stood out? Okay, we'll do it all again. Take out your sheet. No, I'm just kidding. Come on, you got to answer something. What are you thinking out there? Galatians says that, you know, Jesus came in the fullness of time. It was the perfect time for Jesus to come. Yeah. What else? Had it not been for all of the persecution, they would not have spread. And had they not spread, the gospel would still be isolated to Jerusalem, which is not what Jesus wanted. It's hard to stay in Jerusalem when there is no more Jerusalem. Right? Yes. God uses it. Definitely. What else? Some teaching is a huge component of Christianity in Turkey, setting up lots of churches in Constantinople, etc. What was happening in Israel at that time? Was that just after Jerusalem was destroyed? That's a great question. The answer to that is no. So that is t- almost 240 years later. So for 200 and, and uh, yeah, about 240 years later. So we'll, we'll get to him, though. We're, the, our third session, we're going to talk a lot about Constantine. So really, really cool stuff. But that's a great question. What happens next in the Holy Land after the Jews leave and the Christians leave? Right? The church is, I'll give you a little bit of a hint, the church is going to, to move around Europe, Asia, North Africa. It's going to go everywhere. And we know that because we have the writings of the people in those churches. We also have the manuscripts. So we're going to see three areas of manuscript evidence from the Greek New Testament as to where it went. And we can tell the three areas that the gospel goes to. It's phenomenal. What else? exactly right. That's exactly right. And does it sound familiar, right? What does Paul say, Romans 10? How will they know unless you guys go? How will they know unless someone tells them? Their answer might have been, well, we can't really go. And he could have said, well, there are roads, right? God now says there's an internet and airplanes, right? He says, how are they going to know unless you go and tell them, right? And so now you might say, hey, Koine Greek was the language of the empire. It was due to trade. It was due to the Greek Empire, what is the language of the world now? It's English, right? There, you can talk to a lot of people with the language that you've been given. It's pretty amazing. A pluralistic society run by a senate that we have, it looks a lot like Rome, right? And he says, go and make disciples, whether it's here or around the world. Let me pray for us. Father God, thank you for this time studying history, and hopefully we can see your hand in it. Lord, my prayer is that this wouldn't be just head knowledge. It wouldn't be just dates. 
It wouldn't be just people, Lord, but it would be about you. And that we would do business with you in our prayer time and in our life um, in a good way. Lord, that we would fall on our face before you and say, how can I serve you? How can I go and make disciples? And thank you so much that we have your word and we have a language and we have the ability to tell others. And we have your promise, Lord, that we have the Holy Spirit and that you have given authority. In Jesus' name, amen. Thank you, guys. You're the most blessed TBI church history class. You don't have homework. Normally, you'd be walking out to reading about half of one of these books and a lot of handouts. So.